The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. About 50 of the community members will be starting uh, our annual year-end retreat tomorrow night. We've been doing this now. I think this will be our 20th annual year-end retreat between Christmas and New Year's. We end at noon on the 31st, and then there's a New Year's Eve celebration on Monday night. People are welcome to join us if you'd like. Um, we're asking people to sign up just so that we have a sense of how many will be here. And uh, tonight I'm talking about Chapter 11 in Ajita's book, uh, Food for the Heart. I think it's Chapter 11. Actually, it's Chapter, chapter 12 called Inner Balance. But I'm speaking about it in terms of refuge. Some of you know that uh, once a quarter around the solstices and equinoxes, we have a community gathering, which we had this last Sunday, and we formally do the Refuges and Precepts, which is a traditional Buddhist ceremony or community event where we basically commit to this refuge of mindfulness and the trainings in non-harming. And it's useful, not every quarter, it's useful as often as possible to reflect on what actually is our refuge. So this chapter, which is about inner balance, I think it's we could call that peace, too. And to see that as a, a refuge, not a theoretical refuge, but actually something we can turn to in any moment of our life. You know, theoretical refuges don't really work because when we're in trouble, then we have to think about it. And it's a little bit like sliding down a well where, you, you know, it's once you fall in, it's too late to try to stop yourself. So once you're in trouble, it's too late to find the refuge at that point, you know, by thinking about peace or thinking about whatever you think is going to save you in that moment. What we have to do is cultivate a respect, a value, and a relationship with peace all day long, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and decade after decade. Peace, inner peace, inner balance should be our number one friend, our number one value. That's how it becomes a refuge. And this is how it is. You know, we tend to not feel we need a refuge until we need a refuge. (laughs) And then we always end up going to refuges that aren't refuges because we haven't done the work of a refuge. You know, we have to uncover the refuge all the time. And it's a lot easier to uncover it when our situation is relatively simple and balanced, like having enough time on a Wednesday evening to come to a meditation center, you know, we're already, that puts us in the extreme 1% or less of the world's population, you know, people who actually have the time and, you know, aren't so overwhelmed by the basic needs in life that they could be reflecting on what might be a real refuge in their lives. So maybe for some of you, this is already obvious peace, or whatever you might call it, inner balance, is already a powerful value 
something you naturally deeply respect, something that you're sort of cultivating a moment-to-moment relationship with. It doesn't matter the time of day. It doesn't matter what you're doing. There is some intuitive sense of inner peace. Even when you're really outwardly on the surface disturbed, caught up in something, <clears throat> if you bothered to look, you would find your friend, your deep value, right there. Just a little bit below the surface, the agitation, the craziness might be on the surface. Just a little bit below, you see the refuge or you experience the refuge. Oh yeah, there's that friend. I had a teacher back in the 80s, a well-known Indian guru named Swami Satchidananda. He was quite well-known at the time. He's dead now. He did the invocation at uh, Woodstock. Some of you might have seen that photograph. I think it was to the backside of the album. Uh, and some long-haired Indian man sitting in a lotus pose in front of, I don't know how many, hundreds of thousands of people were there. But anyway, he one of his teachings that he gave over and over again was something, I mean, he had many different variations of it, but the, the basic teaching was there really isn't anything ever worth losing your peace over. And generally, we know we're not valuing peace when we think that this situation, I can't be peaceful. I'll get it back later, but right now I need to invest in agitation, or I need to invest in revenge, or I need to invest in craving, but not peace. Because peace isn't functional. That's what we think. And so I think the reason for that teaching he gave over and over again is to challenge that that notion, a habitual notion that now is not the time for peace. Peace comes later when, you know, everything is just right. Then we'll cultivate peace. So there's, you know, there's some understanding. I mean, it makes sense to some degree because it isn't easily initially to learn to recognize peace, to rest in peace, to trust peace, when things are really crazy for us and we're overwhelmed by life. So we do come to a place at Common Ground and we do sit in the quiet corner of our home every morning or every evening or have other places in nature that we go to because initially it makes it a lot easier to develop this value of peace. Sometimes we call this an inner integrity. There's a certain, really visceral sense of peace. So peace really isn't theoretical. It's a both a mind-body experience. It's something we can become very familiar with. And something, because of its resonant nature, even when life pulls us back, out into the surface agitation, the resonant feeling of peace is still there. There's still the flavor of peace, even though part of the mind might be attached or caught up or tight in different ways. One of the qualities of peace, this inner balance I'm talking about, is a kind of steadiness. And it sometimes seems ironic because, you know, in Buddhist practice, We talk a lot about insight into emptiness, into the absence of a permanent center. So as we're living our life, as we're paying attention, especially in this balanced way, in this peaceful way, the mind begins to discern 
that there isn't any body, any set permanent thing behind this activity of life that we're experiencing. There's definitely a life happening. Things are happening. Things are being known. But a center to it, a permanent something behind it all, can't be found, actually. Only thing that's found is the natural movement of causes and conditions. So it seems ironic, maybe, to talk about an inner balance that has the flavor of steadiness. Or even one way Ajahn Chah in this chapter talks about it as being firmly established, grounded. We, you know, that's a word we use a lot even in just normal language. Are you grounded? Do you feel centered? There's a firmness, a steadiness when the mind has inner balance. Everything, life keeps swirling around. Thoughts come and go. Sensations come and go. Things around us come and go. News comes and goes. Sights come and go. Sounds come and go. But there's something that's firm and even unshakable. Kind of a very interesting and somewhat puzzling teaching to the Buddha. <laughs> there's a story the Buddha tells of one night he would uh, practice late into the night. He didn't need much sleep because his mind was so balanced, evidently. So he would often practice late into the night and as it's told, at least, as the legends go, late into the night, sometimes celestial beings would come to the Buddha for teachings. And uh, although celestial beings like angels or whatever we might call them in the Western cultures, even though, in a sense, they're a much more refined being, still, their insight, their understanding wasn't as deep as somebody who has a full awakening. And in some ways, in the Buddhist traditions, it's described that the human realm is actually easier to have awakening because there's a nice balance between difficulty and pleasantness. But in the more refined realms, angelic realms, deva realms, it's too much pleasure. There's no incentive to look deeply. And you just appreciate the pleasantness for as long as that lasts. And then, like everything, things change. And then you can be reborn in another realm. We won't always be in that realm. So anyway, late at night, this celestial being came down to the Buddha and asked the Buddha for some teachings. And specifically asked the Buddha, well, how did you get across? How did you find some freedom in this world where everything's changing? And the mind is, my mind at least, you know, is constantly pulled out, confused by that change. And the Buddha said, I found this, I crossed over the flood with the image the Buddha used. He often referred to our normal world that we experience as a flood, you know, being swept away. And this in, that makes a lot of sense, because we're all being swept away. When we look at the news, we get swept away. When we have conversations with our friends, we get swept away. When we get involved in the politics at work, we get swept away. When we look at our body in the mirror, we get swept away by thoughts how many different ways we get swept away. And so this image of being swept away by a flood. So the Buddha said, you know, when in a flood, when being swept away, you know, I realized that when I tried uh, to sort of force my way forward, I got swept away. When I tried to stand still, I got swept away. So by neither moving forward nor standing still, 
So that seems a little puzzling. Like, what would that mean? And it's really talking about a shift in understanding. Like, how we understand this world of experience. Now, we did two meditation practices tonight. The first one we did, you know, here we are <coughs> in this flood. Sights are coming and going. Even when our eyes are closed, you probably notice, sights still come and go, right? We still have images coming and going in the mind. There's still seeing going on, even when the eyes are closed. Sounds are still happening, coming and going. Sensations are coming and going. Thoughts are mostly coming and going. Maybe there are moments when there aren't too many, but generally, even in meditation practice, thoughts are coming and going. Maybe not so much smells and tastes, but a little bit, smells and tastes. So our six sense gates are ever flowing onward. And if we try to uh, control that, get somewhere with that, we get swept away generally. If we stand still, give up, we get swept away. So what we did at the beginning is relying on right effort so that it isn't this willful uh, movement to the breath. But with right effort, gentle effort, persistent effort, we keep establishing the breath, the actual sensations of the breath, as an object. So instead of thinking your attention is going to the breath, which would be more like marching forward, and we'll get swept away, we'll always be defeated. If we're striving, using that striving energy to be with the breath, we get swept away. But instead, if we use wisdom or understanding to notice the breath, we won't get swept away. Because the breath, like every other object that's coming and going, it's already arising in the mind. The experience of the sensations of the breath, it's already here. So it's wrong to think, I have to put my attention on the breath. It's more about recognizing that the breath is being known here in the space of the mind. That's the key. So this particular strategy of meditation, the way to be free of the flood, is not to strive to know the breath or to give up thinking it's not going to happen. My mind's just too restless, too distracted, you know, whatever you might think, too sleepy. So being too lazy or too strident won't work. But using wisdom, like understanding that, you know, the experience of the breath, it's already here, right? Because, like right now, notice, do you have to do anything to fill your body? No, you just have to remember the body's being known. Well, of course, the sensations of the breath is just some part of the body, right? So to know the breath, it's just to, the effort, the only effort is the effort of remembering that it is being known, not the effort to know it. It's already being known. The mind, in a sense, is already sensitive to the breathing process. In the same way, it's already sensitive to hearing. It's already sensitive to thinking. The mind naturally knows these six, six things. It knows hearing and smelling and tasting and touching and seeing and thinking. It just does that effortlessly. And the only reason we don't know these six things is we forget, like we get obsessed about one of them, and we forget the other Five. Mostly we get obsessed with our thoughts and we forget the other five. But, so we're making this very particular effort to remember that the breath is being known. Remember that the breath is being known. 
And in that way, we start to find some stability, some steadiness. For a lot of people, this is the beginning, easy way to develop this unshakable, steady, firm quality of heart, of mind. So instead of living our life always being swept away by one flood or another, we begin to find uh, inner peace or balance, and then a lot of faith arises once we start to experience that. A faith or confidence in our own mind, our own heart. Like, oh, I don't need an external savior or teacher. There is some way to uncover wisdom and love, by the way, here that is dependable, that's available. That's not about me or mine. It's universal. And it's a refuge. And that that brings up a lot of joy. Because, you know, most of us We've been knocking on a lot of doors, trying out a lot of things, and getting frustrated in a lot of ways in our search. So when we start to intuit something so clearly available, so intimate, so real and authentic, even if we haven't completely realized it or understood it, but just, in a sense, have the scent, know that we're on a path that works, we feel really good about that. In Buddhism, there's the there's a kind of a joke about the stage of practice um, where the confidence overcomes is like much further ahead than the understanding. We kind of the, uh, the you know the, all the way back from the time of the Buddha. The warning is then the person wants to go out and preach, right? Because they feel so good about the practice. The first thing they want to do is call their parents and say you got to try this. <laughs> or their friends. You know, and everyone's going, oh, I don't know about this guy. <laughs> because we've had a, enough of a taste that we realize there's something, there's something really to this practice. But we really haven't understood it clearly enough. So what we feel inspired to do is talk about it instead of to do the practice. And then, you know, if there actually is some inner peace, inner balance that comes from the practice, then the best thing we can do for our parents or friends or or work colleagues is just model it, not to preach about it, but just to have, to live our life with inner balance, with peace, to be living our life with that value. And people will naturally, you know, ask, what have you been up to? (laughs) I want some of that. And you then, you know, in, in the Buddhist tradition, that it said that you shouldn't tell anybody until they've asked three times. You know, because a lot of times people ask, you know, what you've been up to, but they don't really want to know. It's just their way of saying, hi, how are you? You know, and being friendly. So you really want to know that people are interested in what you're up to. And then you can tell them, well, I've been working, training my mind to be in the present moment. You know, and to not be confused by all the movement of my sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touches and thoughts and to realize a real steadiness, that inner balance, awareness that's not confused by what's being known. And out of that comes a deep understanding and a resonant love and a real confidence 
like an understanding of a path, a place, a training to continue to develop that is wholesome in all senses. So I mentioned a moment ago that I, I gave two instructions during the sit tonight, and I just want to talk about both of them in terms of cultivating this inner peace. So I mentioned the mindfulness of breathing, and in a strict sense where we're being pretty persistent about remembering that the breath is being known. Not so much directing the attention to the breath, but it's more recognizing that right here in the moment, there is a breathing process being known. And it doesn't really matter how you know the breath. Some people, it's just going to be easier to feel that gentle movement of the abdominal wall rising and falling. Other people here, other people more as a movement in, down to the belly, up from the belly, out. You just find a way. But the key is to find some particular physical experience to get steady with. To just keep remembering that this is being known, this is being known. And then what happens is the breath, as the whole mind and body becomes more calm, one of the reasons the breathing, mindfulness of breathing, is such an effective object for developing this practice of inner peace or inner steadiness, is that as the whole system relaxes, the breath becomes very subtle. You might have noticed this. And then, of course, it takes a very subtle mind to remember to know, to experience the very subtle breath. It will even feel as if it's disappeared. Of course, as long as we're alive, there is some kind of breath going on. And so, as you're there remembering that breath is happening, you might need to uh, have a lot of confidence, just like holding the awareness where you last felt the breath, even though you're not actually feeling any breath there right in this moment. Because it's so subtle right now that the quality of remembering and the quality of attention isn't up to the subtlety of the breath. And a lot of people, for a lot of people, doubt will arise in that moment. I must be doing something wrong. Where is the breath? And then we'll try to go to the breath. Then we know we're going to be swept away. And then the other error, of course, as we get peaceful and the breath gets more subtle, is to feel like I don't need to remember that the breath is being known. And that's like standing still. And the Buddha says, when I stood still, I got swept away. When I walked forward, forced my way forward, I got swept away. So by neither forcing my way forward or standing still, that's how I crossed over. Not being too lazy, not being too strident with the breath. That's the key. And that's why it's really emphasized relaxation. It doesn't take a lot of tight effort to be mindful of the breath. Because we're not actually directing the attention, even though we call it a directed meditation. In a sense, we have an object we're remembering. But the remembering, the knowing of the breath is here. Like, the, where is the breath happening? We think it's like a different location, you know, and some people get headaches because they're, even though their eyes might be closed, they're sort of looking at their nose thinking, I can't really feel the sensations at the nostrils unless I'm looking there. But the actual knowing of the breath is happening in the space of the mind. That's what knows. The mind knows, right? The same way I could hear fireworks, you know, a mile away, but I'm hearing that in my mind. Or my mind, my heart, right? So the knowing is always here. 
the sense gates, you know, the ear that hears, the eyes that see, the mind that thinks, the nose that smells, the tongue that tastes, the skin that touches, those sense sort of receptors bring in the information and they're known in what we call the mind or the heart. So we remember that. We don't need to get confused by our conceptual map, like sounds are out there, sensations are here, you know, smells here, taste is in there somewhere. That's just, all that's just concept. The actual experience, when you're honest with yourself, the actual experience, like where are you hearing the sound of my voice? You might say, oh yeah, it's over where Mark is, that's where I'm hearing. No, we're hearing the voice here in the mind, right in the middle, always right in the center of things. That's what we call the heart or the mind. It's that place that knows, where the knowing is happening. And that knowing is always happening here, and it's always here. There's nowhere we can ever be but here, except we get confused. And like when I'm thinking about the past, I think I'm in the past. When I'm thinking about the future, I think I'm in the future. And when I'm hearing that car out there, I think there's something out there. But there's only here and now. You could say, like, there's only the space of the mind. There may be an external reality. The Buddha never really said there is or there isn't an external reality. But what he did say, the only thing relevant in terms of practice is understanding it's here and now. Because we're working with this heart, this mind. Suffering is in the heart. Happiness comes from the heart. And that in a sense, we're learning to find a happiness or an inner peace that's independent of what's going on around the external world, whether that's real or hypothetical, doesn't matter. Because we're interested in an inner peace or happiness regardless of what's arising in our experience. So that's one way to practice developing, cultivating this inner peace. That way is particularly suited for formal sitting meditation, because when we're using something like the breath, which gets pretty subtle as things settle down, we'd like a place where there's not a lot of external disturbances, sounds, cell phones going off, people interrupting us with questions, dogs wanting to be petted or cats wanting to be petted. So it's nice to have a meditation center or a quiet place at home where you're undisturbed, where it's relatively uncluttered, kind of orderly corner. Maybe you even have your own version of an altar there, your own particular chair or cushion that you use for your meditation practice. That would be really ideal. The other way you can practice, which also works perfectly well for sitting meditation, but it's also good for daily life practice, is what we sometimes call open attention practice. And I've been talking a lot about this this fall, just distinguishing a more focused or directed meditation, like using the breath as a singular object to develop this inner steadiness, this inner peace, versus using whatever object of experience is arising, whichever object happens to be predominant in this moment, that's what we practice with. And so here... We're not practicing having a choice or a preference. But naturally, there will be an experience presenting itself. Where is it going to present itself? Where is experience going to present itself? 
Yeah, in the mind. Here and now. It always, in every single moment, in fact, if, you, if anybody asks you, what is it to be a human being? You know, what is the essential experience of being human? The, I think the best answer is, in every moment, an, ex, an experience is presenting itself to be known. Because that's our experience. In every moment, there is an experience presenting itself. Whether we're asking for an experience to present itself or not. And it doesn't matter if you're in one of those flotation tanks, you know, where it's dark and you're floating on salt water and no sounds, no sights. Every moment, a sense experience is presenting itself and it's known. And so, the question then is, can we practice with this? And so here we're practicing not um, remembering a singular object like the breath, coming in, going out, but receiving whatever object, in a sense, is predominant or, you could say, is asking for attention in that moment or is getting attention in that moment. This is what the mind is knowing. So, in a way, we're answering the question, what is the mind knowing? If the mind is, in fact, knowing uh, an experience in every moment, what is it knowing in this moment? Is it knowing the sound of my voice? Is it knowing the sensation in the body? Is it knowing the thought, I can't wait to get home? What's the mind knowing? And what is the quality of that knowing? Is it tight? Is it expansive? Is it uh, confused? Like uh, unsteady? Is it steady, not confused, not wavering? Is it taking the experience that's being known personally? Does the experience feel personally as it's being known? Does it feel impersonal, like nature, like a movement of nature as it's being known? So this is the practice, just to give it a title, of open attention. Open attention meditation. You can do this all day long. You can do it formally when you're sitting. You can do it with your eyes open or your eyes closed when you're doing formal meditation practice. Does it really matter? Because you can do this any place, any time, any posture. And you're really just doing three things. You're remembering to stay relaxed. You're doing your best to have a continuity of remembering that this is being known without controlling what's being known. And if you are controlling what's being known, then you notice that controllingness. Oh, controlling is being known. The tendency to control the mind is being known. And then the third thing we practice, without getting neurotic about it, is right right view or right attention or right attitude. Right. So, as we're relaxing, as we're remembering to know that this is being known now, this is what the mind is knowing, we're checking the attitude, the view. Is the mind taking this experience that's being known personally? That's wrong view. Is it taking it as a natural, conditional arising that is arising in this moment because of so many causes and conditions and then soon will pass away for something else to arise? That's called right view or wise view. Whenever we start taking our experiences that are being known personally, just so you know, in Buddhist terms, that's wrong view. If you hate yourself for having wrong view, that's also wrong view. <laughs> because 
that's also a natural arising. It's not personal that we take it personally. It's habit. It's a natural habit that has been conditioned because of the way we were raised and the culture and all of that stuff makes the mind conditioned the way that it's conditioned. Our job is simply to notice whether there's right view or wrong view. If we try to control it, we're not going to be relaxed, and the continuity of awareness will be broken. So this question, is the right view or wrong view, is just a question. It's not meant to be controlling or judgmental. We just want to notice when there's right view, that there's right view, meaning when the mind is seeing what's being known in the moment, it isn't taking it personally. It knows it's just the sound of Mark's voice being known. It's just an opinion that I have about the sound of Mark's voice being known. It's just this being known. Then that's right view. And it knows that there's right view. It knows that it's not taking experience personal. When there's wrong view, then the mind simply recognizes with this object that's being known, there's also wrong view. It feels personal. There is attachment. I'm identified. And we just notice that. That's one of the things that's being recognized in the moment. Well, right here, in this experience that's being known, there's also attachment or identification. That's part of it, being known. When some of my old memories come up, they almost always arise with attachment or identification. Other memories can come up, and there doesn't feel to be much attachment or identification. It's I still recognize that, like in a conventional sense, that happened to me long ago. But it doesn't feel personal. It feels very impersonal. Other things feel very personal. Right? Same thing today. You probably had experiences where, you know, interactions with other people. Some interactions you probably could very easily have recognized as impersonal. Just that sort of natural give and take. And others are very personal. What is that person thinking? How am I going to get even? And how can I get that person to like me? And it, it's very tight because it feels personal. It's heavy because it feels personal. So already to some degree we're doing this third thing where the mind is able to discern whether we're taking the experience personally or not. We're just highlighting it. So open attention practice involves these three things. Being relaxed. The continuity of mindfulness. In this case, mindfulness is remembering this is being known now. The heart is aware of this. And then the third part is getting interested in the knowing, like the quality of the knowing. Is it contaminated by self-centeredness, the quality of the knowing? Or is it relatively free of the self-centeredness, seeing without attachment, without clinging? That's it. And this, you know, that's not too hard to remember to be relaxed, right? You probably already sort of know that one. And we sort of at least theoretically get that it makes sense to be mindful of what the mind is doing, what the mind is knowing. And it's the third thing that takes some practice, to get interested in the difference, to, to be able to very quickly discern the difference when the knowing is contaminated with self-centered. Anytime it feels a little tight, Anytime it's a little unsatisfying, there's a feeling of dissatisfaction, uneasiness, weight, that's that's the telltale sign of wrong view. Whenever there's a buoyancy, a lightness, a sense of uh, natural connectedness, 
contentedness, that's generally the sign of right view, being present, or in the direction of right view. In this chapter 12, Ajita talks about this in wonderful ways. I recommend if you're reading along with us to read that chapter. But I think I'll leave it here. We have about 15 minutes. It would be nice to hear from people. Any questions, of course, you have about the talk tonight? Or any thoughts from your own practice that you'd like to share with the group? What comes to mind as you hear these thoughts about practice? if you're feeling pain in meditation practice and you get identified with that pain, which is very natural because it's one of our deeper conditioned habits is pain is bad. And because it's bad, whenever something's either good or bad, we know we personalized it. Because one of the qualities of right view is the distinction between good and bad isn't so relevant. It's just what's being known. It's either pleasant or unpleasant. But we don't need to demonize unpleasantness or exalt pleasantness. So if you're doing mindfulness of breathing practice and you start to notice physical pain, let's say, it could be emotional pain, but let's just talk about physical pain, then initially the physical pain might not be that predominant. And so with mindfulness of breathing, when you can return the attention to the breath, like remembering that the breath is still being known. You're not pushing away the painful sensations. You're just remembering that right here, in this moment, with the painful sensations in the knee, let's say, there's also the breath coming in that can be known and remembered, and the breath going out that can be known and remembered all the way through, and known and remembered all the way back in. So in a sense, you're not excluding the pain in the knee, but you're not deviating from remembering the breath coming in and the breath going out. And you see, this is a very powerful act because the conditioned habit when there's pain is to fix the attention on that thing that seems like a problem, a personal problem, right? By remembering, by by continuing to remember the breath, we're really challenging that deep habit that I have to give myself completely to this physical pain. Because we don't. Now, we can only do that when the pain isn't overwhelming. At some point, it may seem to be overwhelming, but still try to bring your attention back to breath, because we don't know whether it's actually overwhelming until we can't be with the breath anymore. That's the only way we can know. Because the tendency is always to feel like we have to go there, so we have to challenge that tendency. And just stay with the breath as long as you can. But when you can't, and you keep, the attention keeps going to the pain, then let the pain become the object of awareness. Now at this point, the way you're going to practice is really the same as if you're doing the open attention practice. When you're doing open attention practice, you immediately start to work with the pain in the knee. Because you don't have any preference. 
and that's going to announce itself as the predominant experience in the moment, and the attention is just going to go and meet it and know it. Oh, pain is being known. So here, now, after you can't be with the breath or you're doing open attention and you immediately open to the pain in the knee, the first thing you want to do, and I recommend, especially for people who are new to practice, from time to time at least, use a phrase in your mind to help steady this wise attention. Something like, oh, pain is being known. Just that simple phrase, oh, pain is being known, cuts through so much ignorance. Because our mind is a, a drama queen, you know? And it, it just wants to whip up some huge deal about the pain in the knee. It's always been this way. It will always be this way. I'll never be a good meditator because I have so much physical pain. Everybody else seems to be relaxed, but not me. You know, I probably need surgery, and I bet this other knee's going to need to be replaced too. And how am I going to get that much time off from work? And I'll probably get fired. And God, how am I going to have enough to retire? And should I move to Florida or Hawaii? Can I afford Hawaii? The real estate's probably cheaper in Florida. And you know, that's like our whole life is like that. So, just to be able to simplify it, profoundly simplify it by simply acknowledging there is pain that is being known in this moment, and it's like this. And, and you can even throw in the question, well, can this be okay? Like, just because there are painful sensations that are being known, because now it's our object of meditation, so we're just knowing it. That's what, that's what meditation is. It's knowing what's real in the moment, as it actually is. Knowing the knee pain as it actually is. We might as well ask the question, well, can it be okay? Like, can I relax with this? Can I have a continuous awareness of the pain? And if my mind is reacting to the pain, then that continuity of awareness has to include the mind's reaction to the pain as well as the sensations of the pain itself. Because those are two different things, aren't they? There's the actual throbbing or twisting or burning or stinging or aching or, you know, whatever we feel, numbness that we feel in the knee. And then there's the panic in the mind, the hating it, the judging it, the, you know, feeling betrayed by the pain, the catastrophizing. So there's all that. Those are, one is the mental phenomena, what the mind is doing to dislike it, and the other is the actual sensations that are being known. And so we're having a continuity of awareness, and then this is the tricky part, but this is where all the freedom will come. See if you can, both with the physical sensations and the mental response to the physical sensations, can you see those things as a movement of nature, not as self? And so you could use a phrase like, well, of course the mind doesn't like this sensation in the knee. Of course it's catastrophizing. Of course it's complaining. Of course it's blaming. Of course. This is a natural occurrence. This is a natural unfolding. This mind naturally takes pain personally, naturally complains, resists when there's pain. And it's like this. Complaining is like this. Resisting is like this. Not liking is like this. And then when you make peace with all that mental response to the pain, then you can work more directly with the actual sensations. Throbbing is like this. Stinging is like this. Aching is like this. And then when the mind begins to panic, this is never going to go away. 
Panicking is like this. Thinking that this is never going to go away is an experience that's being known, and it's like this. Can this be okay? Can it be okay that the mind is panicking? Can it be okay that the thought that this is never going to go away is arising in the experience now? So that's how you work with it. <clears throat> Initially, um, it's helpful to not... Uh, pain can be exhausting to be with, even when we're practicing skillfully. So we need some skill at redirecting the attention at times. Because at some point, the mind will get tired being skillful with painful sensations, whether it's emotional pain or physical pain. And it would be very good to be able to redirect the mind. And if the breath doesn't work, loving-kindness phrases can work, or getting up and doing walking meditation can work, or even some mindful cleaning or some mindful service, like going and volunteering somewhere, or shoveling snow, or washing the dishes. So, but you do it with your whole heart, and you give yourself to it, and that will give some space. You give, you create a activity that you can do wholeheartedly, and that will give some natural distance to the pain. And your mind will recover its sort of inner balance. And then with that inner balance, you'll be able to be with the pain more skillfully, because you're now, now more refreshed than when you were having been with it for a while. And so this is important when people have a lot of mental or physical pain in their lives, not to feel you can do all that work at once. you got to be with it for a while, and then you have to redirect away from it. Even if it stays predominant, you develop skill at finding something you can absorb into that's not that physical pain or that mental, emotional pain. Because you will eventually get swept away until your practice has a lot of momentum at some point, will reach our limit and the mind will need to refresh itself by being present with something that's not painful. So that's a good question. That's why I took some time with it. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, in the corner here. Say your name again. Rich. Rich. Nice to see you again. Uh, uh, the story that the Buddha, uh, or the, the parable Buddha used to talk about uh, the Yeah. And control is no power. Uh, and we are, especially in this culture, I think, uh, taught from a very early age that we are supposed to be in control. Uh, we are supposed to have the power to be in control. Is there a way to talk about it? Yeah, that's right. Uh, they're, they're only a kind of uh, exercise in situations where they're not. Uh, anyway, that's the yeah. Do you guys hear Chris's question over there about power? Yeah, I think it's a really good question because a lot of times it seems like we're giving up power. But that's not really the best understanding because it, it ends up just being an excuse to not do the practice. Because as Rich mentioned, we naturally want power. So it's better to think of it, well, how do we really get power? Because even, you know, when you look at the people who were all, you know, seemingly successful at power, 
it never really worked out for them. You know, Napoleon or Hitler or, you know, various emperors or, you know, corporate moguls or... And even when they were at the height of their power, it was always tenuous. They always had to be tight because consolidated power in that fashion is always susceptible to leakage. And for the next, you know, king, queen on, it, on his or her way up. So the real question then is, well, if we're interested in power, how do we find that power? And then even maybe ask a deeper question. What are we? Are we interested in power? Or maybe actually what we're interested in is safety. You know, and then power, like big guns, is a means towards safety. We're not actually interested in wealth and guns and big kind of walls around our homes. We're actually interested in being safe, right? So it's like being wise about, like, what... Instead of just immediately doing what our culture tells us will lead to safety or lead to power, we get interested. Well, okay. So what now is in the way of being completely safe, completely free? So we start looking at that. Well, needing power, needing safety, is the number one cause for the feeling of being unsafe. Like, let's just use the big one. Not wanting to die makes death, you know, thinking we know what death is and not wanting it makes death completely unpalatable. You know, we just can't stand it. And we'll do, we'll spend a whole life, spend a lot of money, most of our time, in different ways, denying that we're born and then we die. And then we have this fragile body that gets sick. In all kinds of various ways. My wife and I, Lynn, sitting over here, we've had our own little adventures in the last few days of just medical weird stuff happening to us and other people we know. So it's like, we all know this. If it's not happening to us right now, we probably know somebody who's having some kind of medical crisis of one sort or another. Completely unexpected, often. So then that really begs the question, well, Boy, if I didn't need to be safe, if I didn't need to be invulnerable, if I didn't need to be secure in this sort of traditional way of like, you know, having something that could never be taken away, I would be so free. Can you just at least intellectually kind of grasp that? Like, if there wasn't anybody here that needed to be protected... There is this life, but there's nobody here that needs to be protected. Think about how saintly our life could become. We could really give this life away to what's good, couldn't we? If we didn't need to be neurotically seeking approval from all of our friends, recognition from the community, you know, the body we've always wanted, the wealth we aspire to, just think about how free we'd be to be a good human being. In fact, that's a good definition of a saint. A saint is a person who is able to do what needs to be done without regard to themselves, but without disregarding themselves either. So, 
They're just doing what needs to be done, taking care of themselves and everybody else without expecting to be successful at any of it, without needing to be successful at any of it. They're just giving their life away, moment by moment by moment by moment. That would be a free way to live. And so, if we're really interested in safety, and that's one of the terms the Buddha used to describe the fruit of practice, safety. That which is safe. True safety. Or another common phrase in Theravada Buddhism is the deathless. Just because death is sort of the big monster in our lives, you know, the thing we're not, we don't feel safe about. And so to, to sort of go beyond the fear of death, where death isn't an issue, that would be a lot of freedom. And this is where this practice leads. And, you know, part of, like, for example, the open attention practice, where we're opening to experience as it is, it's literally directly the experience of fearlessness with things as they are. We have this life. It is already presenting itself just as it is. Can we be fearless with that? Can we be relaxed and continuously aware and not taking it personally? Because when we take it personally, we get personally tight about what's pleasant and unpleasant. We want what's pleasant and we don't want what's unpleasant. When we're not taking it personally, there is no tightness to be found. So when there's perfect right view, there's perfect freedom. When there's sort of right view, there's some freedom. When there's no right view, it's hellish. Any moment of our life that's hellish, you can bet there's wrong view. Any moment of your life where you feel quite alive and buoyant and loving and free, you can bet there's some semblance of right view in the mind. And that would be a good time to see what is the attitude in the mind. And you'd recognize, oh, this is what the Buddha was talking about. It wasn't that the Buddha created anything. He simply realized for himself what right view is. It isn't the Buddha's right view. It's the mind's experience of being free. Free of self-centered drama. And we need to leave it here at 9 o'clock. We'll just take a few seconds. Let go of the words. Take a breath together maybe. being grateful for all the women and all the men who've done this practice for a very long time, century by century, generation by generation, developing their own insight in their messy, busy lives, modeling it, sharing it as best they could, passing along generation by generation, and it ends up here, this time, in this place, And we are the grateful recipients of this lineage of wisdom and compassion. So may we really take it in and join this lineage of wisdom and compassion, living it, modeling it, sharing it in all kinds of natural ways, being a cause for peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering in the world. May this be so. Thanks again, everyone, for coming.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.